So let me introduce Michael. Um, Michael is a best-selling, a world-famous author, activist and journalist. He's been recognised by Newsweek as one of the top ten new thought leaders of the decade. And he's devoted his life to educating the public about the unknown world that is the food industry. He started his working life as a journalist and has won numerous awards for his writing. His work is featured in the New York Times, the National Geographic, Mother Jones, Gourmet Magazine and the Times of London. He was the executive editor of Harper's Magazine and is now the Berkeley Knight Professor of Science and Environmental Journalism at Berkeley. Michael is a journalist at heart, but he slowly gravitated towards writing books to further express his views on food. He wrote Food Rules, In Defence of Food and The Omnivore's Dilemma, as well as The Botany of Desire, A Place, for my own and a place of My Own and Second Nature. I want to welcome to Sydney, Michael Pollan. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a rock star welcome. Isn't that nice? Now, it is. Did you guys, are you in the right hall? You came to hear the American guy talk about food, right? Okay. If not, you can get up and go. <laughs> well, that kind of, actually, it's funny that you say that because it leads me. I was thinking about what might be my first question this evening, and I thought that most of the audience would either have read all your books or know um, what you're on about. But there might be a few husbands and girlfriends who've been dragged along that don't know who you are. <laughs> so I've got a few generic questions to ask. The first one is one that you've been asked so many times, which is, what's wrong with the Western diet? <laughs> uh, the Western diet. Well, maybe we should define it first. Yeah. I mean, the Western diet is what most of us eat. Hmm. It was invented about 150 years ago, invented when we learned how to process uh, food, make white flour and white sugar and uh, refined fats, uh, seed oils. Um, but it's basically a diet very high in uh, processed food, very high in meat, very high in um, uh, refined carbohydrates, very low in uh, fruits and vegetables. We should always say vegetables and fruits, but fruits and vegetables, because <laughs> they're more important. Yeah. And, uh, and whole grains, very little whole grains. And we've known for more than 100 years that people who eat that diet, populations who eat that diet, reliably, consistently get the chronic diseases that now kill most of us. Heart disease, um, type 2 diabetes, um, uh, stroke, and, and several kinds of cancer all have been linked to that diet for a long time. Yet, we continue to eat it. <laughs> which is one of the great historical paradoxes. Yeah, why do you think we continue to eat it? Is it, is it tastes really are we, good. Are we so used uh, to tasting it? <laughs> you can't we have, say Well, that. it's been engineered to appeal to us. I mean, we, we really like sweetness. You know, we evolved to like sweetness. We, we grew up in, a, I mean, as a species, we grew up in an environment where sugar was very rare and very special. You know, essentially ripe fruit, honey, um, and, uh, and we went to great lengths to get it because it was such a, a concentrated source of energy. But now we, and we don't really have a kind of device to tell us we've had enough sugar um, because we never needed that on the evolutionary mm -hmm. timescale. Um, but now we can have sugar, you know, 24-7. Um, and, and same with fat, too, which was also pretty special. You got fat when you were lucky enough to, to kill an animal. 
And even then, the animals didn't have as much fat as they do now. Um, so there's a, there's a disconnect between the, the, the animals we still are and the, and the kind of equipment we evolved to deal with the natural environment we lived in and the food environment we now live in. Um, so as soon as we learned how to process food and make it so... I mean, fast food, you know, doesn't just mean that they deliver it quickly to you, to your car window. It also means it's absorbed by your body really quickly also. You know, we've taken the fiber out and it's just lots of just easy calories that our bodies can't deal with. Um, you've written your last three books that have been enormously successful have, have all played on similar kinds of themes and, and, and have really brought you to lots of different places in America, meeting lots of different people. What's that process been like with the three different books? Have you learnt new things with each one? Well, for me, this whole ride, since I've started writing about food, has been uh, kind of a shocker. I mean, I did not expect... I'd never written a book that I thought would be a bestseller. Um, I wrote books that I was interested in writing about, and I was fortunate enough to have editors and publishers who were willing to support, um, you know, the modest sales of my books. And then something happened. Um, when I started writing about food from the perspective that I chose to write about it from, which is to say critical of the industry, investigative of the, of the way we grow it, um, and questioning also of science, of nutritional science. Yeah. And so taking a kind of uh, antagonistic view of the mm -hmm. conventional views of food um, there was, in America and, and gradually in the world, uh, an amazing um, curiosity about this. Mm. A, a general sense that there's something wrong with food. There's something wrong with the way we're eating. Uh, as a matter of public health, uh, which is obvious because we, we see around us, you know, in, you know skywriting uh, rates of obesity until very recently, and we see uh, lots of people... Um, suffering from type 2 diabetes mm. and so and we all know people who have had their heart bypasses or have to get on statins and mm. this is just routine and and mm. people forget that a hundred years ago these diseases were not routine mm. so there's some sense that there's something wrong mm. and um, and so my work plugged into that yeah. and frankly it's 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 really I mean I do two things I, I tell people where food comes from. I do that kind of investigation and that was the omnivore's dilemma. Okay. But everything I've done since has essentially been common sense. Hmm. Um, you can do very well selling people common sense. And <laughs> it's remarkable. It's not just that. It has it's, to be well written too, right? Well, I guess. It has to be nicely packaged. But um, we've become so confused by the food industry primarily, but also by the nutritionists and the nutrition scientists and the, and the government public health advisories that um, this activity, which no other creature struggles hmm. to decide what to eat. Yeah. You know, it's very natural to most yeah. critters. Um, we have all this Sturm und Drang about it. Yeah. And, and that's very interesting too. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I just try to do is also answer what I'm hearing from readers. Um, I, I meet my readers a lot. I do many events like this, um, but also many smaller ones. And I get questions. And, and the questions I'll hear tonight then kind of get 
absorbed, and I figure out ways to try to answer them. Um, I mean, I'll pretend I know the answer tonight, but I'll really go out and find the answers and write something about it if it's a new question. Uh, you know, a lot, of your, a lot of your work, you know, a very constructive critic of the nutritional sciences, and um, I think very few people in this room wouldn't have grown up. The first thing I really learned about food, other than at school, was the, was the pyramid. Yeah, I can't and I believe thought, you have the pyramid also. Um, I just always thought, why can't I be up Because, <laughs> you know, you want to get to the top Eating of the that pyramid, good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it makes me think about how we should teach our kids about food and eating, and particularly kids who might not get that education at home. I mean, what suggestions would you have about how to teach? Well, don't show them the pyramid. Yeah. Uh, and the pyramid's just a joke. And it's, uh, I mean, we've actually abandoned the pyramid in oh, America. Really? So get with it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't been to primary school in about 50 uh, right. years. So maybe there is a pyramid. I mean, we've gotten rid of the pyramid. I don't know. It would be good to know. But I feel a little awkward offering advice about how to feed children because I didn't succeed uh, too well. Um, I had... <laughs> I had a son, and in fact, it's one of the reasons I got interested in writing about okay. food. I had one of those really picky eaters. Okay. Um, our son, Isaac, um, went through a period from age about two or three till 11 of essentially eating white food. Um, he Did just, you tell you why it needed to be white, or it was just... Well, I think what he, I mean, in retrospect, what he really wanted was plain food. He, oh. he has, he's very, uh, has great sensitivities. Um, at the same time he was only eating white, he was only wearing black. Um, and we weren't living in Manhattan or anything, or Brooklyn. Um, so it was about reducing the sensory inputs, I think. And so he wanted very bland food, which is, you know, rice and bread and, and, um, chicken breasts without any skin on them. And, and, um, you know, just this very small number of things. We would bring his brand of pasta, because he was very particular, once he gotten used to a brand of pasta, we would bring it on trips. Mm. And we'd go to a hotel and we'd ask them, could you please make some pasta? And here's the pasta. And don't worry, you can still charge us for your pasta. <laughs> and they would make it and we'd say, no butter, no olive oil, no anything. And he would take a bite and he said, it tastes different. It was the water, it was different. And he could notice, oh, uh, he noticed. So, so I haven't figured out the answer yeah. to um, feeding kids. A few things, though, I've observed... And he's now an excellent eater. Yeah. And I think what really turned him around was uh, being in the kitchen cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, he, took an in- he took up an interest in cooking, and he had um, a-, a job working in a kitchen in, in the-, the early years of high school. And when kids see how food is either grown or prepared, it demystifies it for them. They're not... They're, you know, they're, they're, they think something's already, always being put over on them, you know, by their parents. And sauce is kind of a good symbol of something being literally put over. You know, yeah. what's under that? What, why are you putting <laughs> that sauce on there? And so um, when he spent, started spending time in the kitchen and I got him to spend a little time in the garden, yeah. he uh, got more curious. Mm-hmm. And kids will try things they cook themselves, even if mm-hmm. it's not their normal foods. Yeah. Um, so I think that the kind of work that someone like Alice Waters in America or Stephanie Alexander here is doing to um, immerse kids at the sensory level with the growing and the preparation of food is really the key. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, too many kids experience food at the end of this very complicated food chain yeah. 
and they don't really know that a chicken nugget comes from a chicken. It's just, in fact, my son, I said, so, you know, what do you think of the chicken nuggets? He wanted to have them at McDonald's once, Mm -hmm. and I I did not forbid him. And and they had reformulated their chicken nuggets, Mm -hmm. um, supposedly to make them more like chicken. And (laughs) it was an amazing idea that they had. (laughs) And I said, so does it taste more like chicken? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He was like 10. And he says, no, it's a nugget. It tastes like a nugget. (laughs) And it's true. Fast food has its own flavor. And it's quite apart from anything else. It's sweet, generous. Yeah. Uh, You've spent a couple of, I mean, you've spent a little bit of time here in Australia. And I know you've had an opportunity to go into one. I'm an expert now. One of of our supermarkets. Can you tell us which one or do you not want to? Uh, I was in a Coles and a Woolies, and Coles I gather and that's oh, all that's you have. Very, that's very, that's, that's <laughs> so very egalitarian of you. That's yeah. great. So I just wanted to know if you had any just even superficial impressions about our food culture and whether it's what the connections between America's food culture yeah. and perhaps differences. You know, one of the things that's very sad about what's happening with food globally is that like this vast lawn of undifferentiated sameness. It's just rolling across the globe. Mm -hmm. And food, every time I travel, it seems more alike than it did before. Supermarket food. Um, And the same tricks uh, spread around. And indeed, a lot of these companies are owned by the same entities. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of struck by how similar um, the the conventions of the of the Australian, Mm -hmm. even though we don't have Tim Tams and, you know, Tobies, and we don't have some of the brands you have, Mm although they're owned by companies that own our brands in many cases, um, it's the same deal. Uh, selling food based on nutrients. Um, I, I can't believe you can buy a box of cereal that has in big letters fiber. Toby's plus fiber. Toby's plus antioxidants. Toby's plus whatever women need. Um, <laughs> no, they have women's what, essentials. Husbands that do the laundry. <laughs> 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 Tell me where I can get that cereal. Sorry, go on. (laughs) So that whole kind of nutrient-based, you know, it's not the food, it's the nutrient that matters. You know, the good nutrient and the bad nutrient. And then there's all the products without the evil nutrient, you know, gluten-free, you know, um, saturated fat-free. So the whole conversation, like it is in America is, uh, I mean, the term I used in In Defense of Food, which is actually coined by an Australian, a nutritionism. I mean, our ideology of food is that to eat well, you just have to know the good nutrients and the evil nutrients. Mm -hmm. And if you've got that down, you you know, you gravitate to the good ones and you don't eat the evil ones, you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Problem is, the identity of the good and evil keeps changing (laughs) because they're really not sure. Um, And so, you know... uh, you know, protein a uh, hundred years ago was thought to be an evil nutrient. Mm. Um, it, it, it fermented in your gut and produced mm. evil, evil things mm. that gave you cancer. And yeah. now protein is good unless it's gluten. Yeah. So <laughs> it's um, so it's not a. It's just a crazy way to eat, and it's yeah. a, and it takes all the pleasure out of food too. Yeah. If you if you if you don't even see food and you look right through them to the mm. to the nutrients. So that was one thing I noticed. Mm. The other thing I noticed was extreme instances of convenience. Mm. Um, you know, this is how you sell mm. food. I mean, you you uh, trick it up, you change it, you turn cereal into a cereal bar, mm. you um, take yogurt and you put it in a clever package, and then you actually I saw this this. Um, 
who makes this product? I don't know, but it was a, it was a squeeze tube of yogurt yeah. that already had cereal mixed in. Mm. And, and it had this, like, hand grenade top, and you twisted it off. <laughs> and there was breakfast. You were done. Okay. You didn't even have to spend, I think the average person spends 13 minutes on breakfast. This got it down yeah. to 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, incredible ingenuity. Yeah. In the center aisles. Uh, also, the, the perimeter is where the real food mm. still is. Mm. Uh, and that's true here, too, I, yeah. I, I noticed. So, um, and you have, of course, even greater concentration of your food, yeah. gr- your grocery industry yeah. than we do. Um, yeah, we do. I'm amazed to learn that 80% of the market is controlled by two companies. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about the role of the two supermarkets in organic in a minute. Um, I want to have another Australian-based um, question. So Australia's facing some pretty serious problems with um, salinity, water infrastructure, the disappearance of peri-agriculture zones in, in places like Sydney and Melbourne and elsewhere. We're a, a dry continent. You may not get a chance to go into the dry parts of it, but we are a dry continent. And I think this challenges our capacity to be locavores. So what do we need to do with that? Do, can we usefully and ethically import the food that we want to continue to eat? Or do we, you think we need to adapt our diet to our environment? Well, I wouldn't presume to tell Australia how to organise We're always food. used to Americans telling us what to do. And some of us, unfortunately, politicians listen to them. But we, you, uh, you have a go. Go on. Well, I'll, I'll just offer a few kind of sketchy points, but they're not, they're not really prescriptive. First of all... Locavorism is, is usually uh, caricatured as an all-or-nothing ethic, yeah. Yeah. and it's not that. I don't really think there's anyone who seriously thinks the solution to world food problems is to completely localize the food system. Uh, we've been trading food around the world for probably eight, 900 years at least, heavily. Um, it started with small things like spices, and, and, and it has progressed to bigger things. Um, Sugar, rum. I mean, you go back and you find stuff has been moving around the world a lot for a long time. Um, And we've done this to vary our diet uh, and satisfy our cravings for certain Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, That said, I think there's a really important value in localizing to the extent that you can. And this part of a local aesthetic is that it can't be applied in a blanket way everywhere. Mm. So some areas will be able to feed themselves locally to a greater extent than others uh, by virtue of blessings of geography, uh, weather, whatever it is. Um, the, the value in doing it is, um, is terrific, I think. Um, I think that it is a way to keep more money in farmers' hands. Very, very important. In America, the farmer receives less than 10 cents of every dollar that you spend on food. The rest is going to middlemen of various kinds. The people who create the packages make, get more of that dollar than the farmers. Mm-hmm. Part of that is that we have this very long food chain with a great many middlemen. So I think shortening the food chain is very good for farmers and very good for agriculture, um, which means very good for preserving farmland, mm-hmm. another very important uh, goal. Because once farmland is developed, whether it's houses or, or, or whatever, it's never going to be farmland again. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's an enormous loss. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know that we'll always be able to count on global food markets to feed us. Um, They depend heavily on fossil fuels Mm. uh, to move that stuff around. They're also now 
so um, at the whim of Wall Street and speculators that we've seen these giant swings in the price of wheat or the price of coffee or bananas, swings that just destroy whole economies, very often driven purely by speculation. Uh, or stupid decisions made in Washington. When we, got, when, we, when we got into ethanol in a big way, people starved in the Middle East. And guess what happened? Um, so uh, it's not a marketplace you want to be utterly dependent on. And so to the extent that any region can insulate itself, I think that that's really valuable. I think it makes for a more resilient food system. And then, of course, there's the beauty of celebrating what you have. And uh, Australia has the most extraordinary flora and fauna. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, you think about Americans eating locally, and we don't have, we don't have all these weird animals that you can eat, and <laughs> and and these really interesting fruits and greens, and I mean, these things I've had in the last few days, and and it's been kind of thrilling to see. This I, I, I realize it's very tentative, but this interest in Bush Tucker and, and um, that I, I you know would be wonderful to see develop further. The fact is, a cuisine is what is a compromise between a species and a place, right? And the species is Homo sapiens, and the place is this landscape. And it's kind of amazing that people have found healthy things to eat. They've constructed diets on six of the seven continents. Out of what nature has to offer us, that's an amazing yeah. thing. Very few species. You take the koala to any other continent, yeah. that's it. Yeah. They're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are omnivores. Mm-hmm. It's a great gift. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the, the amazing thing is that we we're mostly, although we can find a traditional diet on six of the seven continents at least, that leaves us uh, very very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're eating a diet that reliably makes us sick. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, wisdom about health in some of these plants that people overlook because they're, they're too local. Hmm. I have an audience question here from Lily Morrissey, and she wants to know, can organic become mainstream in Australia without the involvement of Coles and Woolworths? <laughs> I mean, you've been quite critical yeah. of, of uh, large retailers like Walmart and asking questions about well, their you know, I think their question. I think it's a debate we need to have. I'm not. I, I think it's great when Walmart starts selling organic um, in many ways. I mean, it's not an either or a thing. I mean, the 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 answer to really the interesting questions in ge- about food, but in life in general, are usually both end. Yeah. I mean, you need. There are certain people who are only ever going to get their food at Coles or Woolies, yeah. um, and so for them to eat organic. That's where it's going to have to be. There are other people who will go to the trouble to go to a farmer's market uh, or join a CSA and have a box scheme, you know, have their food delivered. So I think we have to reach people where they are. And, um, uh, I, you know, yet that said, companies like that will be much tougher on the farmers uh, who are growing organic and will do what they can to force the prices down. And I, I'd hate to see organic farmers laboring under that kind of regime, of, mm. of um, uh, which is what leads farmers to make, you know, take shortcuts. So and has that been what's happened in the U.S.? Well, not yet. I mean, right, but it, can uh, it hasn't yet. In general, what's happened is the the market for organic food is kind of bifurcated, and you have right. certain big organic providers, growers, 
who sell to the supermarket chains. Mm -hmm. And then you have others that have stayed out of that economy because they can't compete. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet they're actually selling a a better product. It's grown with more care. It isn't quite as industrialized. It's... Uh, it, it usually tastes better. It doesn't travel as far. So they all thought they'd be crushed by these big companies, but in fact they've carved out another niche. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most exciting things about the food movement in America is it's building an alternative economy yeah. um, so that some people are staying out of the supermarkets mm-hmm. and getting their food in another place. And I think that's wonderful. We need a check. We need, we need diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, the great sin of, of agriculture is monoculture, is doing everything the same way, too much of the same thing. The same is true for economics as well. Mm. If it's not all supermarkets or all local farmers markets, you're going to need many different ways to feed ourselves, Mm. many different ways to reach people. So I think you have to work on all of it. Mm. The question I often ask people is, how would you feel if McDonald's got religion one day and went all organic? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Mm. Well, you can, you can argue it both ways. Um, it would be a, a bad thing in that a lot of people would come to the conclusion that McDonald's food is healthy mm. because organic has this halo about it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that would be really misleading because yeah. the food would be no better for you. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you, when you think of the, the acres of cornfield that would no longer be treated with atrazine and these other really nasty... Um, herbicides mm. to make all that organic high fructose corn syrup yeah. <sighs> you know and when I say those <laughs> words I, I don't wish for organic high fructose <laughs> no, corn no, no. syrup but on balance it would be good for the land it would be good for the farmers and so I think I might have to say okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not full throated but yeah uh, we've been having conversations on and off for the last couple of years in Australia about do we need to put a tax on junk food, uh, bans on junk food advertising to children and so forth. Um, I, I would like to hear your views about that and what kinds of legislative measures you think yeah. are going to um, push back our obsession with the Western diet. And kind yeah. of, um, I don't things. know which of those ideas or other ideas will work, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think we need to try them all. Um, I think we're, we're, there really is a crisis, a public health crisis around food. When you talk about the healthcare system being bankrupt uh, in America, which it's getting close to being, you're really talking about the cost of treating chronic disease. It's 75% of the money we spend on healthcare goes to treat these diseases that could be prevented by a change in diet. That's astonishing. So the government... And the health insurers have a very powerful interest now in, uh, in changing the diet, which is a very hard thing to do. Diets are very hard to change. Um, if taxation will do it, great. We should try it. Uh, we, need to, we need to experiment. In America, many uh, mayors, Mayor Bloomberg in New York and, and others, and governors uh, in Massachusetts have, have come out and said we need a, a soda tax. Mm. If you want to change one thing, in the, in, the, in the diet of, of a nation that's struggling with type 2 diabetes or obesity, reduce soda consumption. It's really simple. That's the, that's the biggest, um, the single biggest thing you, you, know, you could do. Um, but we cannot get a soda tax through anywhere in America because the soda industry, Coca-Cola in mm-hmm. particular, 
um, has come forward and spent whatever it takes to defeat those measures. So we haven't had a trial of that idea, and I think we deserve a trial of that idea. Just let one state try it and see if it actually reduces soda consumption. Um, Other ideas that are out there, uh, Mayor Bloomberg in New York has just been ridiculed for um, he, he frustrated on the soda tax. He couldn't get that through the legislature. For some reason, the mayor of New York has the power to dictate the size of the cups in yeah. movie theaters. Yeah, it, it came, it came, we got that, that information out <laughs> here as well. It was quite I just don't know what law that is. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and he's gotten just a world of grief um, for saying that you, that you cannot sell soda at a movie theater in cups bigger than 16 ounces. Isn't there something pint, in A pint, okay? It's not like thimbles. We're still saying you can have a pint of soda. You just can't have 64 ounces. And you can, no, no, you can buy 64-ounce soda cups. They don't look like cups as you understand them. They look like buckets. (laughs) But isn't this infringing your God-given right as Americans that you fought for in the Civil War to drink enormous amounts of soda? I mean, that's the kinds of things that It's not in the Declaration of Independence. No, well, it's Um, in the fine print somewhere, I'm sure, at the bottom (laughs) Well, no, you can buy two 16-ounce ones. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All it is is an effort to... I mean, I'm not sure it's a good idea. If it works, it's a good idea. Um, I mean, I'm really a pragmatist about this. But but if there's just that moment of reflection before you go from soda one to soda two, that seems like a contribution. A small Um, price to pay. But the other issue... I mean, the other things... The more serious things we need to do is look at the way we subsidize agriculture. I mean... Mm. You know, we talk about rising levels of consumption of sugar and junk food. In fact, those are precisely the calories the U.S. government subsidizes. We subsidize corn and soy and wheat and a couple other little crops. And um, we don't subsidize the growing of produce, of vegetables. So with the result that over the last 30 years, the price of produce, fruits and veg, have gone up uh, 40% while the price of soda has gone down 7%. So we're eating what, in a way, our agricultural policies are telling us to eat. And so we really need to change those policies. We need to help the growers of produce. We need to come up with incentives that will uh, encourage farmers who are just growing corn and soy, which are the building blocks of the fast food diet, to diversify. Right now, if you're growing corn and soy in America and you decide you want to put in 10 acres of tomatoes, you're fined by the government because that's corn and soy land. Um, so, and I know the, I mean, I, look, I know the political power of, um, you know, the kind of Iowa caucuses and all, all right. but why, why is it, that's working for corn, but what about soy? What's happening? Why is there such a... Well, the soy and corn share the field. They oh, take right. turns. They're the, it's oh, the okay. rotation. So it's, um, so it's the same people right. and the same moneyed interest. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's very complicated, and, and um, you don't really need to know about how U.S. agricultural policy right. is written, because <laughs> um, no one in America knows either, and it would be weird <laughs> if you guys did. And... Um, <laughs> But basically, um, only uh, representatives of corn farmers sit on uh, these committees, and there's an unholy relationship between uh, social welfare programs around food, which are in the same bill as these subsidies. So if you support food stamps, which is our most important social welfare net, you end up having to support subsidies. It's a very uh, corrupt system. I'll leave it at that. What do you think about the celebrity chef phenomenon? So Australia is really 
you know, we have lots of celebrity chefs. We, I mean, we, Heston Blumenthal could probably fill this room as much as you could. We're mm-hmm. kind of obsessed with celebrity chefs and cooking shows and, and cookbooks. Uh, do you think it's a good thing for good eating or not? I don't, I don't know how much it's changed the diet, the celebration of chefs. Um, cooking shows don't correlate with more cooking. You know, there are many people in America today who spend more time watching cooking shows than they spend cooking. Significantly more. I had an ex-boyfriend like that as well. You did? Got rid of him. So in some ways, cooking shows discourage people from cooking because they make it look really hard. It's kind of, you know, wow, look at all that fire and and (laughs) they're chopping so fast. I could never do that. And so it does what most television does of any kind, which is, I mean, you know... Sports on TV don't get people out to do sports either. Television is designed to pin you to the couch to watch more television and buy the stuff that's advertised on television. That's what that's all about. So it's not surprising. It's not motivational. The positive thing about the celebrity chef phenomenon, and I think this is significant, is that chefs have become leaders of the food movement in many ways. Um, in America, Alice Waters is a, is, a, is a great example. She started very early. Uh, in Australia, too, people like Kylie Kwong, uh, you know, who have paid a lot of attention to where the food comes from, working with the farmers, encouraging them to grow things they want. Um, they have been a positive force for social change. That's an amazing historical development. If you go back in history, chefs are kind of you know, these baubles of the rich. I mean, yes. they're decadent. They're essentially a decadent phenomenon. Mm. And in fact, one of the great Roman writers, I always forget his name, um, Livy or somebody said that when the chefs in your culture become famous, you're on the road to decadence. <laughs> really? We're not. I mean, I don't think that's where our chefs are taking no. us. I think they're taking us in a very different direction. And I think that that's, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, and even if they're cooking for elites... And, and they are cooking for elites. Uh, elite taste has a way of disseminating over time. Your work has really changed the way many of us look at the food that we buy. Do you have any? Um, did you have ever had any encounter with somebody who's read any of your work that has actually changed the way they? they oh, eat? all the time. All the time. All the time. Can you share some with us? People are always coming up to me at signings, and they're. Um, they're telling me, you know, your books changed my life. And I always say, I hope for the better, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> and then they, and they, they tell me that, uh, and sometimes they'll produce a picture of them themselves. And they, they say, I used to be 300 pounds. Uh, how much is that? And, you know, yeah. I used to be yeah. enormous. And yeah. here I stand before you. Yeah. And, and, and I just did it wow. from like, I mean, I don't write diet books, right? And that's not what I'm doing. And I don't talk about weight loss very much because that's not what it's about. It's just about eating real healthy food. Health is more, you know, is the important issue, not just weight. And um, so that thrills me. I mean, it's a wonderful thing when that happens. And um, I mean, in a sense, Food Rules is a diet book in a very loose sense of the word and that it gives It's not a weight loss book. No, it's not a weight loss book. It is a diet book book in a sense, But in in a sense, the principles are really... So two ones that I've been following is is would your grandmother recognise it as food? And my Italian grandmother, not my Scottish grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) And that's an important correlator. You can pick your grandmother. Yeah. 
<laughs> and um, the other thing I've been doing, which my four-year-old hates, is if she asks for something at the supermarket, I, which is normally bad, I say, you have to say the ingredients, and she goes, maledictory, and she just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, so, make them pronounce I mean, in a sense, those kinds of... I mean, I was interested that you wrote Food Rules because we're... Because we're so bewildered by all the information that we have about what we should and shouldn't eat, we still strive to look for guidelines and rules for how we should eat. And some of that book was made up of readers who themselves... Oh, yeah. Those are not all my rules. Um, mm. Don't eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognise. I don't, I don't think I wrote that sentence. The book is full of sentences mm. I didn't write. It was a really... Um, if you, if, <laughs> there's no easier way to write a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I sort of, I crowdsourced it. I mean, the the premise of the book is that having discovered that nutritional science really doesn't hold the answers we need right now, Mm -hmm. I mean, they have not figured out a lot, Mm -hmm. and they've overplayed their hand in some ways in telling us fat's the problem, you know, and and they're fixated on nutrients, and I understand that. I mean, I think nutritional science is really hard to do, and I respect Mm -hmm. the people who do it, Um, but I think right now it's you know, if you take a long view, it's kind of where surgery was in the year 1650. <laughs> really promising. <laughs> really interesting. Um, but are you ready to let them work on you? Um, so, so then, then I was kind of stuck because I was writing this article about so how should how should you eat? You know, if you don't, if if all this isn't true, and then I realized, well, the key is to get off the Western diet. And, and the other thing, to the extent you can. And the other thing that occurred to me, I'm, I'm an English major. I didn't study science. Um, and uh, as an English major, I had an appreciation for the fact that there are other sources of wisdom about nature, about our bodies, mm. than science. Mm. And long before we had science, we had this amazing set of tools called culture. Mm. And that's how we learned how to eat and passed that wisdom down. Um, culture is just a fancy word for your mom, mm. you know, when it comes to food, yeah, by yeah, and large, yeah. and, yeah. or your grandma. Yeah, yeah. And so then I thought, well, it, maybe culture still has some wisdom mm. uh, that we could collect and before it disappears, because it's really in danger, yeah. because people are so cowed by science. You know, I had a mother who, I have a mother who, who for a long time fed us margarine. Um, this is in the 60s, and, um, and the whole time she did it, it, and that was, you know, animal fats were evil, eat margarine, polyunsaturated fats. And the whole time she said, someday they're going to find out that butter is better for you than margarine. And, every, and we all thought that was crazy. And um, it turned out she was right. Mm-hmm. But she was too intimidated to stick to her guns yeah. because that was the public health message. Yeah. So, so the book was an effort to kind of collect that cultural mm-hmm. wisdom, and um, and I put out requests on on the internet, mm-hmm. and and got four thousand rules, eating rules. And by rules, I don't mean laws; I mean no, like no. personal policies. Yeah. A policy is a very a very powerful tool. It it, it mm-hmm. keeps you from having to think too hard mm-hmm. in every new situation. Yeah, yeah. So when you're on the cereal aisle, instead of reading all those labels and figuring out how many grams of sugar, just don't buy any cereals that change the color of the milk. Yeah, yeah. That's all you need yeah, to know yeah, yeah. on the cereal aisle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're shorthands, you yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. And I got some great ones from grandmothers. In yeah. fact, my favorite came from an Italian grandmother and a Jewish grandmother. They had the same one, yeah. which was um, the whiter the bread, 
the sooner you'll be dead. <laughs> Which science is now That's right. proven. That's right. um, uh, so, you know, the, the grandmas were often there before the yeah. scientists. I want to ask a little bit about the role of women in food. Um, a couple of years ago, Jamie Oliver, I'm, I'm a big fan of his, was talking a little bit about obesity problems and the lack of um, a food culture or people kind of cooking in England. And he said, look, it, it all stems from you know, that generation of women who stopped cooking and went out to work and then we started to become addicted to takeaway and convenience foods. And sometimes this discussion about the the lack of cooking and that breaking of, the, of knowledge of generations with what generations have done before falls very heavily on women. Yes. Um, how can we break that? Because it can't just be about grandmothers teaching mothers teaching That's right. girls. Yeah, and this culture has to be more than just your mom's wisdom. Yeah. Um, there's another way to tell that story. Um, the change, I think, has partly to do with women entering the workforce. Um, but an interesting thing happened when women entered the workforce. A conversation got started between men and women about housework. Uh, and Com- it was a r- conversation. <laughs> I, I, you know, in the most civil version. <laughs> no, okay? no, I think that's right. Yes, and it was a very difficult conversation yeah. for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and it was short-circuited by the food industry. The food industry said... Don't fight about this anymore. We'll take care of it. And the food industry, so I see them as a real player in this, um, that there was a, they recognized a need and they stepped in. That conversation should have continued. Uh, that conversation should have been played out because there was a need to establish parity in, in all kinds of work, including housework. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a real shame. Um, and in fact... The food industry clothed itself in a, in a kind of feminism. Uh, in America, we have uh, there was a billboard in the 70s. Um, it was a big bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the headline was simply "Women's Liberation." <laughs> yeah, so they knew what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing, and and all the advertising. Uh, for all this processed food was directed at women. Mm. And, and the implicit message was, and, and the way advertising works is you create an anxiety and then you solve the anxiety. And so the implicit message was, it's your responsibility to feed the family. Mm. We'll help you. Mm. Instead of having that difficult conversation with your husband, yeah. take this shortcut. That's right. And it was irresistible. Yeah. It was irresistible for everyone because everyone doesn't want to have that yeah. you know, conflict. So I think we have to go, if we are going to, return to a, a cooking culture, which I think is really mm. important, it's going to have to be a, uh, a shared cooking mm. culture. It can't go back to mm. what it was. Um, and there's no reason it has okay. to. And, and one of the encouraging things, and you talk about okay. this in your book, um, was the fact that, and this is a very positive thing about these celebrity chefs, many of them are very macho men. Yeah. And they... Uh, and many boys are enchanted by these guys, mm. and my son included. Mm. And he does not have the stereotype mm. that cooking is women's work. Mm. Yeah. Um, he hasn't observed it at home, mm. but he hasn't even observed it in the culture. Yeah. Um, so we have a chance, I think, as we celebrate cooking, to bring men, boys, mm. into it. And also mm. in these programs in schools. Yeah. Um, because... When I went to school, even the education about cooking was gendered. Yeah, you know, yeah. the girls took home ec and the boys took shop. And I learned how to make a Japanese light lantern. 
And they learn something useful. Um. <laughs> uh, look, I've been, in, in order to prepare for tonight, I've been looking at various other things that journalists have asked you over the years. And they do seem obsessed about knowing what you eat. They constantly mm-hmm. ask you, what did you have for lunch or did you eat the in-flight meal? Um, why do you think people want to know what you eat? <laughs> I don't know. A guy who writes about food, you want to know what he eats. I think they think I have some magic answer. Mm. Um, uh, but I'm an omnivore. I eat all different kinds of things. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhat more self-consciously on the days I'm going to be interviewed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never go to McDonald's on an interview day. Um, <laughs> you should ask, what did you eat yesterday? That would be much more clever. <laughs> But I don't know. I, people are curious as to what you eat. I, I, I will say that I've eaten incredibly well in Australia. Um, I've just been so... It's, you know, my wife and I, my wife's with me, Judith, is here, and so many good meals uh, with beautiful ingredients and, you know, bright flavors, and, you know, it's winter. Uh, so it's just been, you know, it's been great. But I eat a lot of different things. I don't yeah. eat a lot of meat. Yeah. Um, I think... We eat altogether too much meat. Mm. Um, the most, you know, my, my, my little slogan that was mm. on the cover of In Defense of Food, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And those seven words are all you need, really. Um, you can skip the books. Um, <laughs> except someone's going to tell you what food is. Um, but uh, the mostly plants was yeah. the most controversial. Mm. It pissed off the vegetarians. Yes, I was about to say. Because I didn't go all the way, yeah. and it pissed off the meat eaters because I you know, was saying mostly plants. Yeah. But it's not an all-or-nothing proposition. Mm. I think, you know, uh, I think meat is a perfectly nutritious mm. food, and in small quantities um, mm. it can be done sustainably. Mm. Um, I think we, you know, in America, I don't know how much you eat. You might eat mm. e- even more, but we eat nine ounces of meat per person per day, more than half a pound. Mm. Uh, we're eating it at three meals a day. Mm. Meat was a special occasion food yeah. and probably has to return to that yeah. um, because the, the environmental impact is immense. Yeah. But I don't think we need to ban it. Mm. I don't think vegetarianism is the only answer. Mm. And I've really struggled with this. I mean, I, I, one of my formative experiences was actually with another Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are three Australians who've influenced my thinking quite a bit, and that was Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. And I spent a very long chapter in Omnivore's Dilemma trying to defeat the arguments in animal liberation, and he's much smarter than I am. Um, but I succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> but I only succeeded in defending, as he, as he okay. acknowledged, 1% yeah. of the meat industry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this and, and let me just say why that is, just yeah, very briefly, yeah, yeah. because I do think a truly sustainable agriculture will have animals in it, mm. and that in nature, nature always farms with animals and plants mm. in together in, in this in this very beautiful relationship, such that the sun feeds the the grass and the grass feeds the ruminants mm. and the ruminants you know uh, fertilize the grasses. Mm and can feed us. And there are many places, and there are many parts of Australia where meat may be the most sustainable way to take energy from the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we all move to row crop foods exclusively, I think that that would be, uh, uh, first of all, it would make local eating in many places impossible, um, but I think it would be an environmental disaster. Um, talking about how well you've eaten in Sydney, I did have an audience question from Guy Narberg who asked... 
Um, can you actually, because you've been on the road, how do you actually manage um, eating ethically and sustainably when you're traveling? It's very hard when you travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my rules, it's not in the book, but it'll be in some editions sometimes, is no meat in airports. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no meat. I've never seen good meat in an airport. We'll get there someday, um, but we're not there now. Um, I guess a big thing is unless you're eating in a restaurant where you know that they really pay attention to sourcing, you eat vegetarian. Um, I eat you know, a lot more vegetables on the road and, um, because you just don't know in terms of seafood and um, uh, meat what you're getting in a lot of places. Um, but it's definitely challenging. Uh, look, there were quite a lot of questions and I don't think I've ever done an event about food where people don't ask about GM and lots of different questions around whether um, labelling of GM, is is GM going to be really the solution to um, global hunger? So it'd be good to get your views about GM, what you think about it. Uh, okay, it's I'll such take a, a big complex, breath. I know, massive, I know. You've asked, you've asked a couple different yeah. questions. I mean, absolutely it should be labeled. I don't understand why it wouldn't be labeled. If this stuff is so wonderful, tell us about it. Um, <laughs> why do you have a product you're saying is going to you know, feed the world and solve all our problems, but you're afraid to have people know they're eating it? Mm-hmm. There's a contradiction there. Um, and, and we have a right to know what's in mm-hmm. our food. And even if our interest is completely irrational... Mm-hmm. Um, this is what, in America, 80 to 90% of consumers want. And, mm-hmm. and in California, we're going to get to vote on it uh, mm-hmm. this year. Right. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, will GM feed, you know, do we need GM to feed the world? Mm-hmm. There has been uh, little evidence that GM will make an important contribution to that mm-hmm. question. Um, and there are a couple reasons for that. Um, most people don't realize that GM has not increased yields of most crops, um, which is the idea. I mean, if we need more food for a growing population, um, and if yield is the issue, and, and, and by the way, it may not be the issue, but let's, 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 let's stipulate that yield is the problem. We have to increase yield for a population of 10 billion or 15 billion. Um, GM has been notably unsuccessful in doing that. They have not figured out how to dramatically increase yield. In a couple crops, under certain conditions, it's a little better. But if you look at the period we've had GM, uh, conventional breeding has achieved more gains in yield in that time. Um, So I have yet to see the GM product. That's the, you know, what the computer people would say is a killer app you know, is really making a, a contribution to a problem we need solved. Um, they started by saying it was going to reduce pesticide use, but it's had the opposite effect. There's a lot more pesticide being used, herbicide, uh, Roundup in particular. Um, I think it's kind of less new and sexy than they think it is. I mean, it's basically a Band-Aid on these big old monocultures um, and doesn't represent a new way of doing agriculture. Is it... You know, is there something evil about it? Is there something, you know, fundamentally unnatural about it? I don't have those problems with it. And I think if, if I always ask critics of, of GM, can you imagine a genetically modified crop you would support? Um, and you get interesting answers. Some people say, absolutely not. The whole idea is fundamentally flawed. But what if you had a public breeding program and you were using this technology to really solve some serious problems? Um, you know, but that's not how it's working. Yeah. Um, 
and we're we're being asked to uh, accept this technology based on a on a on a promise in the distant future, not based on what they're offering mm-hmm. us now. And that's that's a that's a gimmick. Sure. That's called bait and switch. Yeah. Um, and that's how they're selling it to us. Yeah. So I have a lot of problems with what it, I don't think it's really made a contribution. Mm-hmm. I think that so far it, all it has done is tighten the hold of a handful of corporations mm-hmm. on the genetic resources mm-hmm. on which we all depend. Yeah. Uh, and for that reason alone, I think we need to keep alive all these seeds that are not GM. Mm. I also think in 10 years we won't be talking about it. Mm. I think it's not working very well. And, and that's a story I haven't been able to pin down. But mm. when I started writing about it in 98, and I had wonderful access to Monsanto and their mm. scientists and their farmers who use their products, they had introduced Roundup-ready crops. These are ones designed to withstand herbicides and BT crops that exude this uh, relatively benign uh, pesticide in every cell. And they said, well, these are just baby steps. We've got great things in the pipeline. We've got plants that will fertilize themselves because they can fix nitrogen and and nutritionally enhance and all this stuff. None of it has shown up. And is that, is that because the potential isn't there? Or because, I mean, there's got to be money in there. I mean, there's got to be money invested. Well, of course there's in money it. in it. I think it's harder to do than they thought. Right. I think they could do a single gene or two genes, small, right. you know, and, and but the really interesting traits like yield, like uh, ability to fix nitrogen right. are very complex. Right. And you can't um, – and, and our whole model of the relationship between genes – and um, I think what's happened since 98, we had the Human Genome Project, mm-hmm. which discovered that, and this was the great scandal, that you only have 25,000 genes. That's like less than rice. That's, that's less than the roundworm. <laughs> How could such complex beings have so few genes? Well, it turns out that that model of one gene to one protein to one trait isn't right. It's a very elaborately networked system where one gene is doing many different things depending on the context. So this engineering model that you change one thing and then you get the desired output that it's really like software, it's just not holding up. Mm-hmm. I think the biology is kind of yeah. falling, falling apart beneath them. But that's just my hunch. Yeah. I have two quick questions and then there's times for audience questions. Just We're going to um, put the lights up um, so Michael can see you and we've got four uh, uh, microphones, one, two, three, four, and just if you want to line up. Uh, but I have two quick questions. One, again, is an audience question uh, about food, but before that, I wanted to ask you a question as a journalist. We have one non-food question in this. Uh, we've had a lot of change, rapid change, in um, the media space in Australia, um, certainly quite recently. Any views about the future of journalism? Where do you think it's going? Well, you know, I teach journalism. Yeah, no, I know. And and I I have these students who come to me every year (laughs) and ask that question. And, you know, by the time they get to me, they've already decided to go to journalism school. So I don't really have a chance to tell them what I think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is what? Run away! (laughs) Well, I don't don't know that going to journalism school is such a good idea now. But... um, it's, it's not necessary to be a journalist. I, I didn't go to journalism school. I mean, I know lots of good journalists who never went to journalism school. But, um, you know, it's another both-and question. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a writer, the changes going on in media have been uh, a blessing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have more readers because all the stuff I write gets put up on, on the web. 
Um, so you pu- it used to be, I mean, you know this, you'd publish mm-hmm. an article, it would come out in a magazine, and it would be on the stands for a month, mm-hmm. and then it would disappear. Mm-hmm. And if anyone ever wanted to see it, they had to go to the library. Mm-hmm. Remember doing that? Um, now it lives forever. And I can publish an article in a very obscure journal, and everyone in the community of people who cares about that issue will find it. Mm-hmm. And that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. The problem is all those everyones don't want to pay for it. Mm. Um, and, and as an uh, in industry, we need to learn how to persuade people to pay just a little something for all mm. this information that they clearly mm. want. I write a lot for the New York Times, mm. and the New York Times has struggled, like every other newspaper, mm. um, with uh, the advertising. It's an advertising problem, basically. Mm. Um, but their readership, you know, they used to have one or two million people reading the paper. Now they have 40 million people mm. reading them online. Mm. So... So if you're a writer wanting to reach a lot of people, it's just the best of times. Um, Getting paid for it has gotten more complicated. Um, But Mm. I think we'll figure that out because if people want information, they will pay for it. One quick question. This is another audience question. How do you sell quality in a world obsessed with quantity? Mm, That is, in a way, the question. Yeah. Um, Because we've organized our food system around the idea of quantity. We've organized our agricultural policies, the servings in the restaurants. Everything is organized around quantity, and people think that good value is lots of food for a dollar. And that's partly the work that chefs are doing, is teaching us that what we're looking for when we eat is not sheer quantity of calories. It's a kind of experience, a kind of food experience which has a lot more elements than just number of bites. And, and in fact, you know, as one of the rules in the book is the banquet is in the first bite. You know, the best mm-hmm. part of the experience is at the beginning. And um, so I, I think it's a, a big cultural shift. And we're talking about changing norms, and, and that's where chefs have been really valuable in changing our norms. And, mm-hmm. and, and I would hope that that would... And chefs will tell you they struggle with this. They put a, a, a sane portion on, and there will be a certain number of people who will c- complain about right. it. But they have to lead the way from this supersized idea. Um, but if we can focus more on the quality of food mm-hmm. rather than the quantity, it would do so much for our health. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, you know, and, and it would also allow us to pay farmers a living wage yeah, yeah. Um, because we're underpaying them right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about something like meat, you know, well, how can you grow meat sustainably? Well, maybe we need to pay more and eat less. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's another rule that mm. I learned from, I got from a chef. Mm. And that's a very kind of controversial thing to say because mm. it sounds very elitist. Mm. Um, and, uh, and there is a whole issue in the food movement with elitism that, mm. that um, I think is a, uh, something we need to grapple with. Mm. Um, uh, because if meat... If you, if you produce meat the way it should be produced, if animals, if, if ruminants stay on grass, if you take antibiotics and hormones out of the meat production, it will raise the price. Mm-hmm. And this will differentiate, this will hurt the poor more than it will hurt the rich. On the other hand, the poor are struggling more with the health effects of this mm-hmm. food system. We have plenty of people complaining about the cost of food who also throw out an enormous amount of food well, as well. That's when, when yeah. I was trying to, I was getting at when we were talking about the feed the world issue. Yeah. I mean, we're growing. 6,000 calories per person per day in the world right now of yeah. food, okay? There's, that's three times as much as we need. Yeah. There's plenty of food around. Yeah. Uh, it's in the wrong hands. Yeah. It's being a, a third of it is wasted. Yeah. Um, 
there's, it's a distributional okay. issue. It's, and we're feeding a huge amount of it to animals. There is a way to, or there, there is enough good land to feed a much larger population if we can reduce That's meat consumption um, and uh, give people the power to buy the, the, the food. Of, the, food, the food movement can't fix all the problems of society. We, we really just need to pay people a living wage so they can pay the real cost of food. Because right now, our food is being, uh, we're not paying the real cost of food. Cheap food isn't really cheap, no. it's really expensive. Yeah. Okay, so questions. Where have we got? I can't actually. Could I have the lights up a little bit more? Is there somebody over at number one? No? Over number two? Over at number three? <laughs> over at number four? Oh, no, there's some people moving. Terrific. So, oh, we've got somebody here at number two. So we yes. might. Uh, please go ahead. Uh, this is uh, to do with the supermarkets. We don't have anything in Australia equivalent to Whole Foods in America. And I know a few years ago you had a bit of a dispute with them or with their chairman. And I don't know what's happened subsequently, but surely they're a company who are trying to bridge the gap and produce food more ethically. Yeah, they are. I mean, Whole Foods is a very interesting um, company. Does everyone know what Whole Foods is? Okay, it's a it's a it's a it's a supermarket chain, um, unfamiliar to baritones, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, um, and they've made their reputation. They're they're expensive. It's a, it's a premium chain, uh, but they now have two hundred stores around the country. They're very very popular, very successful. And they do source their meat ethically. Uh, and they work very hard on it. And they have a very careful labeling system. Um, and uh, I had written about them in The Omnivore's Dilemma because uh, I, I, I accused them of, of kind of, you know, a kind of greenwashing. Um, I called it supermarket pastoral. Um, it was a literary genre. They, they work very hard to put beautiful pictures of small farmers up around the stores when, in fact, they were buying from very big farmers. And, you know, there's a certain kind of hype going on. And they weren't selling local food. They were selling all their organic was coming from California, wherever you got it. So after um, kind of, you know, nicking them about this in this book, uh, I got a call from the chairman, uh, John Mackey, who's a very interesting, eccentric, mm. Ann Rand-worshipping, you know, multimillionaire. <laughs> and, he, um, and he invited me in. Uh, and I didn't know why exactly. Um, and uh, I went in, and he kind of dressed me down for about three hours. I can't believe he didn't have anything better to do. Um, but um, uh, it was very interesting. We got in this exchange, and then that turned into an exchange of letters, and I challenged them on why aren't you having any local produce here? Why aren't you helping small farmers more and all this kind of stuff? And then he turned around and did something really interesting, which he, he, he wrote uh, an open letter to me in which he made all these promises of what they were going to do to change. And they were going to have grass-fed meat in all their stores, and they were going to uh, source locally, um, I forget what percentage, and they were going to create this revolving fund to fund small farmers. And he did all these kind of amazing things. And um, I realized in retrospect he was kind of using me um, in, a, in a very clever way, in that most companies, if, if they accede to a criticism, they'll pretend it was their own idea the whole time. But he was doing something else. He was saying to his, um, his shoppers, I listen, and here is this critic, and uh, I'm responding. I'm responsive. Um, it was kind of a brilliant idea. 
and and it worked. And I, I you know, I don't shop there actually. Um, <laughs> it's it's they're better places to shop in my town, but um, uh, they do have wonderful f- food. I think it's overpriced. Um, and uh, but they are doing this. They have a lot more local food than they used to. And I talk to farmers about them, and some of them rave, and they say we have we've got a really square deal from Whole Foods, and others, you know, complain mercilessly. So it's kind of still a mixed bag, and I think it depends on the region. But it's a very interesting model, and it will come to Australia um, because the market for this kind of food is growing, and somebody is going to figure out that there's a that there is an opening. Okay, over at number one. Hi, I'm just wondering if um, human populations can adapt to diets that consist almost entirely of meat and milk and blood, could we perhaps one day adapt to the Western diets? (laughs) And is the problem perhaps that before we manage to do that, we'll destroy the earth, creating (laughs) the food that consists of the Western diet? Well, you've answered your question. Um, Yeah, here's the problem. I mean, that's the path we're on now (laughs) as as a world, which is to say we're going to evolve to eat this diet. Um, The problem with that, um, which is to say our bodies will learn how to process, you know, this onslaught of sugar, you know, 147 pounds of it a year, um, and all this meat and and all these new chemicals, and and we'll get used to it. And the people who can't eat this way, they'll get diabetes and they'll die. Great. Um, (laughs) So there's there's an incalculable amount of suffering um, in that solution. Um, the other problem is, of course, that evolution is, is mostly interested in you during your childbearing years. And so a lot of these diseases don't come up till later. So um, we may be now evolving, you know, away from childhood obesity and, and uh, uh, you know, obesity does lower fertility and, and uh, so, I, you know, maybe, but it seems to me a really brutal way to deal with the problem when there is such a more practical and beautiful and economical way to deal with it. Um, but so far, that's where we're going. You know, we're going to a world where there will be a dialysis center on every street corner in the inner city. Um, and the seats in the airplanes and restaurants will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I just don't think it's sustainable. And, and yes, and the environment cannot sustain this diet either because we've, we haven't talked about the environmental consequences, no, but the way we're eating is, is as hard as it is on our bodies, it's very hard on the animals and it's very hard on the soil. Um, I don't think there's anybody up at... Have we we answered all your questions? No, 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 there's lots more. So back to number two. Sorry, is there somebody up at three? Yeah, let's... Oh, there is somebody up at three. We just can't see Sorry, number three. That's okay. Um, Michael, you mentioned some of the issues that you have with organics, and you also (laughs) mentioned that you have a home garden. Um, I was wondering if there's any systems or particular people that you can point to that can maybe give us some guidance in... Uh, agricultural production methods that maybe may be uh, better for our health and uh, better for the planet, as well as perhaps home gardening and what role that plays? Well, oh, those are great questions. Um, I think home gardening has a very important role to play. I mean, you know, what food is more local and more sustainable than, than food you grow yourself? And you get exercise in the process of growing it. You know exactly what's in it. Uh, it could not be fresher, um, and uh, it has, you know, in America during World War II, something like 40% of the produce was grown in home gardens. So 
I think it's a really important part of the solution, and and I applaud Michelle Obama for putting a focus on it. Um, uh, I think gardens, and it's a great place to teach kids how to eat. Um, so it performs many, many functions. Um, the whole idea of using your body in support of your body is is a wonderful idea. I mean, we now, Wendell Berry talked, you know, he has this wonderful man from Mars perception of this. He said, you know, why, why do we, like, we have these bodies, we know they need exercise, so we take them out for walks, you know, like we take them to the gym. Why don't you use your body to kind of contribute to your support by growing a little food? And I think it's a, a powerful idea. In terms of agricultural methods, there is so much ferment around ways to grow food, and a lot of it's in this country. I mean, permaculture as a movement... Um, which is the idea of farming uh, modeled on, on closed ecological systems, comes from Australia. Um, Joel Salatin, who I think has been here several times, he's a farmer that I've learned a lot from, and I, I profiled him in Omnivore's Dilemma. His farm, if I could just describe it briefly, uh, for me was the epiphany that made me understand what is possible. Um, he's uh, an animal farmer. Uh, he grows, although he calls himself a grass farmer, um, which I thought was really curious because we don't eat grass. We can't eat grass. Um, but basically he has six animals and they're in a very elaborate rotation uh, and they're passed over the same pastures. And he, uh, just to give you an example, the way he grows uh, uh, chicken and um, uh, beef, the, the, the beef cattle are, are mobbed up in a, in a, in a tight uh, paddock, which is made with um, you know this inexpensive electric fencing that you can pick up and move. They spend one day, and then he moves them to the next paddock, and they, they mow that down. And then he waits three days, and then he tows in his uh, portable uh, egg mobile, he calls it, and um, and opens the gangplanks, and 400 laying hens come down into this paddock, which is like a quarter hectare probably. Um, and they do something really interesting. They make a beeline for the cow patties, and they start pulling them apart, and they eat the grubs, uh, the larvae of flies. That's their favorite food in the world, and that's a very important source of their protein. And in the process, they also... Um, and that's why he waited the three days to bring them in, because he wants to grow the larvae as chubby and you know good as possible. And, but if he waited four or five days, they'd hatch, and he'd have a big fly problem. Um, so the chickens take care of the fly problem on his ranch. I've never seen a ranch with so few flies. Um, they also spread the manure, and then they fertilize the grass with their own manure. And then he moves them out, and the grass comes back and in six weeks' time, and he's ready to do it again or bring in other animals. And what to really appreciate this system, you have to really get down on your belly and look at the grass, which he made me do. Um, and... Um, uh, and, and he explained what happens when you, when you graze a pasture this way. Um, and that is that um, every time, I didn't know this, a ruminant uh, grazes grass, this plant that was this big goes down to being this big, the plant basically kills off a comparable amount of root mass. Because if you see a grass this high, it has that much roots going that deep on the other side. But they try to keep their roots and shoots in balance. And so they kill off all these roots. And what happens to the roots is they then get set upon by the earthworms and the nematodes and all the, all the life in the soil. And they're digested. And that's how soil is created. Um, and so you realize that um, in a farm like this, uh, and soil is created from the bottom up. 
And, and it suddenly clicked, because like most of us, I think, I always believed that our relationship to nature was a zero-sum deal, so that when we get what we want from nature, nature is diminished. It's a process of subtraction. It's a tragic process, and it usually is that. But here was a farm where at the end of every year he took all this food, all this beef and all these eggs and all this chicken, and there was more soil, not less. There was more biodiversity, not less. There was more fertility, not less. And, and that was like, wow, it doesn't have to be zero sum. There is a way to use the sun to actually create more soil health and biodiversity. So... Now, there are people doing what Joel does in this country, and there are more and more people in, in America doing it. And, um, and you can go online and, and read about him or, or get some of his books, which are wonderful, because he kind of explains how to do it. But there are ways to farm that are um, non-zero-sum, and, um, and they're particularly applicable in the developing world, obviously, where you don't have a labor shortage. Um, so I'm, when, I, when I learn about a farm like that, I'm just full of hope. Uh, number four. If there's anyone at number four. First of all, thank you, Michael, for coming to Australia. Can you hear me? Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, you've mentioned previously that there's an increased amount of effort that people must go to to live a healthy lifestyle on a vegetarian or vegan diet. It seems to me that, that you spend more effort than the, probably the most people on the, on the standard American diet, and I don't know if you can call that the standard Australian diet as well. Um, and I'm wondering, does it could it not be better framed as if you want to have a healthy body and thrive, you need to spend more energy on the way that you eat, not just as a vegetarian or a vegan? Well, I think that's a very good way to put it. I mean, I think that our biggest problem around food is our thoughtlessness, um, that we're not willing to put time into this, obviously, this very important thing that, that for most of our history as a species, people devoted an awful lot of time to food, to growing food, to hunting food, to preparing food. And now we're down to, in America, 27 minutes a day on food preparation and another half hour maybe on shopping. And so we are eating thoughtlessly, we're eating unconsciously, and, and we're seeing the results of that. We're shopping quickly, we're eating quickly. We're yeah, it's just we're <laughs> speeding quickly. everything up. And it's too important to treat this way. We simply can't outsource something as important as what we put in our body every day to large corporations who don't have our interests at heart um, and that devoting more time to it, whether that means you're going to be a vegetarian and spend all that time chopping, um, which got to me after a while, um, or you're going to ask annoying questions of the butcher, um, which are actually very productive. I mean, that leads to change. Um, uh, or ask them of the, of the wait person in the restaurant. Um, I think we all need to pay more attention and... and and not only that, it's not, it, it's not a hardship. Um, it is um, the thing about this issue, unlike so many of the other issues we face, there is a, a component of pleasure um, that's very central to it. There's not a trade-off between sustainable food and quality food. The best food I've had here and in America has turned out to be the most sustainable food, the most beautifully grown produce, the most beautifully grown meat. Um, so where else in life do we have that opportunity? The only problem is money. Um, and it's not a small one. I don't, I don't mean to minimize it. Um, but if you're willing to put time in, that can make up for money. 
um, if you're willing to put time in cooking, um, you can use cheaper cuts and, and come up with you know, brilliant things to do with it. So we, we have to devote either more time or more money to our food if we hope to be healthy, if we hope to preserve the land. I've been told to finish at 8.30, which is now. I'm very sorry for the people who lined up to ask questions, but I think if you buy every single one of Michael's books now, <laughs> you might be able to sneak a question in. So Michael will be signing books. Thank you very much, and thanks to Michael for today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. I think we, I so think we stand up and go. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much.